How do you think that choice relates to the professional collapse of the history discipline, if it does or doesn't? Because the reason I I saw your piece about this, right? You did a piece about this in the Times, I think, right? Yes, yes, I recently did. And I just asked because so many historians, and I would even say particularly from Columbia, have really taken the, there's no job, so I'm going to be a public intellectual. So I'm wondering if your decision is related to that at all. I think there's two tracks, right? I mean, Columbia has a proud tradition of public intellectual historians. You know, I mean, they are amongst the most distinguished contributors to the genre in American history all the way back to the beginning of the 20th century. And that's just the bit I know about. So, so on the one hand, that's the case. You know, I mean, I, I, I follow, a, you know, I think about Eric Fone, you know, I'm a kind of humble successor to somebody like a towering figure like Foner. But then you're right. Yes, I think I think being in New York helps, right, in the sense that people are essentially part of the same party scene. I mean, it's true though of Yale and Princeton as well, right? All of the all of the major universities, NYU, um, Fordham, and so on. I mean, all of the universities in the broader zone of the New York um, intellectual and publishing scene, I think, do tend to produce a disproportionate number of folks involved in this. Michael Geyer, the great Germanist, once actually said to me, Adam, the thing you know that's going to happen if you leave Yale and move to Columbia is you'll get sucked into this. And I think he was quite he was quite prescient on that score. And it is, as a European, really remarkable that a country as, the United, as large as the United States could have a publishing and intellectual scene as concentrated as it is, right? It's spectacularly concentrated in New York. So there's a real gravity, you know, what the economists would call a kind of gravity model effect. I mean, it happens here because it happens here, right? There's a sort of massive inertial logic to it. I increasingly encourage my students to, because I've found it not just not just remunerative and, you know, it's satisfy your, your ego because you get lots of attention, but it's it's also just intellectually worthwhile. You know, it's, it's, it's I, I mean, I, I at this point find academic seminars and academic publishing just mind-bogglingly slow moving i can't i can't cope i mean i'm I'm you know i'm a fast twitch kind of person anyway but but i used to be able to deal with my impatience and um once you've gotten used to the level and the the pace and the speed and intensity of good quality twitter conversation it's pretty difficult really to retreat to to other something else like it's like a very very good seminar um, very, you know, it's like power tennis. The ball is moving very fast and being hit quite hard by both all sides, and there's a lot of spin on it sometimes. And it's just a very, very, uh, very engaging. So I, I, you know, very much actively encourage. But as you pointed out in that piece, I mean, the the job market situation is absolutely dire in the humanities. So there is every reason for people to develop multiple strings to their bow. You know, to have lots of options. And in general, there's no reason for pessimism, right? There's no question that out there in the world, there is a huge appetite for good, serious, highbrow, indeed very highbrow content. The really the question is, you know, how is that positioned occupationally? What kind of job security comes with it? What are the channels to which it's provided? But we're educating more and more people to a higher and higher level. And the social media give us means for orchestrating conversations about all sorts of things in the way we never could before. So there's... That's also, for me, part of my kind of resistance to structural pessimism is that there are so many opportunities here if we can figure out the right way to organize them. Obviously, I say all this, I'm very conscious of the fact that I say all this from the position of extraordinary privilege, so it's easy enough for me to <laughs> yeah. be gung-ho about it because I'm like a winnable around. But, um, but nevertheless, 
you know, if you, if you, you know, <laughs> nor do I shed, however, any tears for people who end up with fully funded graduate student places at American Ivy League or private universities, or indeed the great public universities in the United States. These are some of the great lottery tickets in life. And so if it should be that after six years doing that, you don't end up with an academic job, it is really, you know, it's not the end of the world, but you need to get yourself in the right mental and psychological frame to recognize that fact, because you shouldn't do a PhD for instrumental reasons. You should do it because you want to do the project and you're fascinated by it and you want to spend five or six years in deep intellectual, you know, deeply engaged in intellectual activity. That is the only sensible and also, I think, right way to approach it. Maybe a job comes out the other end, maybe not. So... But isn't it, wouldn't the issue there be that the only people who are able to make it as public intellectuals have outside sources of capital, and therefore no, that doesn't follow. No, you press. have to be willing to take risks, and you have to diversify your sources of sources of uh, of income. And um, it's obviously it helps if you're a trust funder or whatever. But um,